0: The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers, and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense.
1: So, we're here for our second keynote, <clears throat> and I am delighted to introduce our keynote speaker, uh, Dr. Peter Feber. Uh, so, Peter, uh, as you know, he's a, a, a giant in the field, and to use a civil-military relations metaphor, uh, uh, the dean, I, I would say, the dean of civil mill scholars Still on active duty, and by active duty, I mean like scholarly active duty, right? You know, so and and all of that. So his current titles include professor of political science and public policy at Duke University, director of the Duke Program in American Grand Strategy, and co-principal investigator of the America in the World Consortium. I should note too that the America in the World Consortium is a is generously supporting this conference. Dr. Fever's many publications include his books, Armed Servants, and Guarding the Guardians. He's also a generous co-author, probably with many of you in this room. Um, and Peter brings a unique perspective to the field due to his service on the National Security Council staff in both the Bush and Clinton administrations, um, and his service as a naval officer in the Navy Reserve. This morning, Dr. Lee and he will discuss his new book, which comes out on June 21st, and it's called Thanks for Your Service, the Causes and Consequences of Public Confidence in the Military. For
0: those of you just awareness, um, as usual, we are live streaming this for our webinar as well as recording it, Um, but we are also uh, recording this to tape to be released as a podcast later on with our online journal, The War Room, and our podcast series, A Better Peace. Uh, so uh, we have a, an awesome opportunity today, uh, but make sure that you know your questions are being recorded for posterity. Uh, and and we're looking forward to this. So <laughs> uh, yeah, trolling is uh, is being recorded. So I, I want to begin um, a little bit where we left off yesterday, in that we had a question to our our panel yesterday afternoon that uh, kind of questioned and some responses that questioned whether or not, you know, polls about public confidence in the military should be taken seriously. Um, Your book begins kind of in three sections. You've got who who supports the military, why do they support the military, and then you end with, you know, what does that support mean and how does that affect opinions? I kind of want to start at the end and ask, you know, why do we care about whether the public has confidence in the military or not?
2: Well, uh, thank you, Dr. Lee, and uh, thank you for inviting me. I, I want to begin by noting that uh, a friend sent me uh, a chat GPT of me talking about Mill, and it was generated by chat GPT, and it was uncannily uh, accurate, uh, which tells <laughs> me that I'm very easy to predict. <laughs> as, <laughs> but Jason Dempsey uh, reminded me this morning that he can predict what I'm going to say even without... Uh, using ChatGPT, because he said, I bet you'll say something about the coronation, and I will. I'm gonna wa- I want to remark on the ironic coincidence that we've been talking about the guardrails of the Republic, which is, I think, civ- civil-military relations, and, of course, the all-volunteer force is, is the military that we have today, and that is the guardrails of the republic, which is a precious thing that we need to preserve. But I'm sure you felt the same way I did. I loved watching <laughs> I like the republic, I want to keep the republic, but it's fun to watch a king, uh, at least when it's their king over there. <laughs> so that's my way of, of introduction. But le- let me say that I think public confidence in the military matters because it has become a social fact in the United States. It's one of the few things that the public seems to know or claims to know confidently about military affairs, Uh, and that is they believe that the military is held in high esteem by the rest of the public. So if you ask the public, does the rest of the public hold the military in high esteem, The public says yes. Uh, And if you notice from the polls that were described yesterday, one of the striking numbers which wasn't mentioned or wasn't highlighted but is worth reflecting on is anywhere from a fifth to a third of respondents would give the I don't know answer on just a whole range of military questions. Uh, But they don't give the I don't know answer to does the public hold the military in high esteem. It's become a social fact. Uh, yes, it has declined in recent uh, years, but it still is high relative to the rest of public institutions. And as uh, Heidi rem- reminded us yesterday, the military certainly knows this and pays very close attention to it. So in the world of polling, it's one of those you know polling results that seems to have captured the imagination. Uh, And so I think it's worth studying for that reason. I think it's also worth studying, personally, this is why I got into studying, because uh, about late 90s, I uh, published an article that said public confidence is brittle and is likely to go down. And if you plot public confidence in the military over time and then you put a pin when I made that prediction, Public confidence went up after that and it stayed up uh, <laughs> remarkably high uh, for another uh, 15 years or so. And I thought, okay, it's time uh, to figure out why I was so dreadfully wrong. Uh, and it's, I, uh, I think the book uh, explores that in, in, and maybe makes a convincing case, I hope, for that. Ironically, though, where I come down the, is public confidence is high but hollow. Hollow, brittle, it's, uh, it's roughly the same thing. I think the drivers of public confidence indicate uh, that public confidence is more likely to go down than up. Yes, that's exactly what I said in the late 90s. I was wrong then. I hope I'm wrong now, but I don't think I am. So now, to answer your question, why does it matter beyond the social fact is that it is correlated with other things that we care about? <clears throat> yes. The public has high regard, but low propensity to join in the aggregate. That's true. But when you look at, when you disaggregate the data, actually public confidence in the military is correlated with other things like propensity to join, but more powerfully, propensity to recommend to others to join. And so if you're trying to raise an army in the, or recruit an army in the all-volunteer force, High confidence in the military helps drive other people saying, yeah, you should go join the military. Think about that. Uh, and whereas low confidence would undermine the influencers and the recommenders from encouraging people to join. Similarly, public confidence in the military correlates with other things that uh, the, the Army cares about. Um, not just the Army, but the Defense Department more generally, namely desire to spend more money. Uh, here, the change there's a change before and after 9/11, but after 9/11, it's uh, people with higher confidence in the military want higher defense budgets, uh, and particularly Republicans. So, this is this is a useful uh, heuristic, a snapshot heuristic, of what does the public think about the other things that the military cares about? You know, encouraging people to join, raising. Uh, uh, Sorry, raising the defense budget, it also correlates with attitudes people have about foreign policy, whether uh, the military is a useful tool. People with higher confidence in the military think the military is a useful tool. Uh, And people who have higher confidence in the military tend to give uh, more hawkish or willing to see the military as an answer to a particular national security threat. Uh, And so, for all these reasons, I think it's worth studying.
0: So, who are these people who uh, who express confidence in the military? Do we see kind of particular patterns or trends in who is particularly supportive or has high confidence? Right.
2: So, uh, a number of folks in the room uh, worked on this over the last several decades, and they pointed out that that uh, Dave Burback in particular pointed out that this high confidence number in the aggregate masks some important differences uh, when you disaggregate. And most importantly, Republicans uh, have much higher levels of confidence overall uh, than Democrats. So there's a huge partisan gap uh, underlying the overall um, confidence number. But it's also, it varies for other demographics as well. Whites have higher than non-whites, men have higher than women, Um, veterans of course have higher than non-veterans, and uh, South has higher than other regions. There's a generational divide. This was flagged yesterday. The Gen Z is not the lowest, at least in the data that uh, Jim Golby and I collected, The, uh, the lowest is the millennials uh gen z though is definitely lower than uh, the baby boomers and so um uh, there is there's there's a pronounced generational divide between older folk and younger folk
0: yeah no the uh gen z and the millennials are not impressed right yes uh has this always been the case so are there are there kind of trends that we can look at that are that are changing over time
2: Yes, uh, there are lots of changes, lots of trends that that have changed over time. One, one interesting uh, trend that I'll, I'll flag for you, uh, which I think is, because uh, this came out yesterday in the conversation, and it's worth uh, probing further. Confidence in the military versus confidence in other institutions. So the famous snapshot is confidence in the military is high, confidence in all other institutions is low. And uh, in the 80s and 90s, there were two government institutions that were held in high esteem, uh, the military and the Supreme Court. Over time, Supreme Court has dropped. As Heidi likes to say that Corey likes to say, uh, the public... (laughs) views the, the Supreme Court as a more partisan, polarized institution. And that's a warning for the military. Do, the, do not go the path of the Supreme Court, which once was held as above politics. Um, but there's another trend that I think is worth flagging. And that is that there's a relationship between one's confidence in the military and one's confidence in other institutions. But that relationship depends on your partisan identification. So for Republicans, what you see is confidence in the military is correlated with lack of confidence in other institutions. For Republicans, it's the land of the blind. We have confidence in the military, Republicans say, because we have low confidence in others or not necessarily because, but while at the same time having low confidence in others. For Democrats, though, it tends to travel uh, as, a, as a unit, that confidence in the military uh, rises with confidence in all the other institutions. And so that suggests that there's an interesting partisan split in the way confidence when the military intersects with uh, our views of other institutions government institutions.
0: So I want to move now and dig into not just who has confidence in the military, but why. Uh, because that uh, that difference that you're pointing to suggests that there are different motivations uh, between partisan identity and uh, different types of people in kind of why they express confidence in the military. In the book, you identify uh, six P's as uh, predicting, kind of uh, especially predictive of who has confidence. Patriotism, performance, professional ethics, partisan identity, personal contact, and public pressure. I love the alliteration, by the way. It's fabulous. Um, so talk to me a little bit about kind of patriotism. What does that mean, and uh, how is that correlated with, with confidence?
2: Yeah, as you noted, there's a number of times in the book where uh, I have these you know, groups, and I try tried, tried to make them f- fit an acronym same letter, and I did that because I thought it'd be easy to remember. Now I can't remember them because <laughs> they all merge in, in my mind. So thank you for reminding them reminding me. So what are the, the main drivers of public confidence in the, the military? Uh, there's not a lot of shocking uh, findings in this part of the book. I think the, it's good social science in that it you know beats to death some intuitions that, uh, that have been out there. Uh, and uh, I'm glad to say are backed up by data now. But uh, patriotism is one. So that public confidence in the military spikes uh, as a rally around the flag effect. Uh, and so there's a big spike after Desert Storm, big spike after 9-11. This makes sense. When the public uh, feels threatened and it looks for uh, to the military to protect it, and the military is able to uh, deliver then that um, uh, that sort of patriotism uh, argument uh, or not argument but the patriotism frame helps drive public confidence and i it's an open question whether the war frame that has gone on for the last two decades the global war on terror war frame whether that uh, will be seamlessly replaced by the a Cold War competition with China frame that functions the same way that it props up public confidence in the military. Uh, if, as I sincerely hope, we don't get into a shooting war, it could be that that the war frame will gradually dissipate and we'll go back to a Cold War frame, which was only occasionally hot actual shooting but long periods of armed uh, tension, but not actual war. And if that's the case, then this one pillar of public confidence we would expect would, uh, would gradually uh, lead to lower public confidence as the military recedes from its prominence uh, that it enjoyed in global war and terror. So that's, that's one. Performance is uh, is another, that is, the belief that the, that the military performs competently. Uh, and as David Burbach and others have observed, this is an odd prop to explain public confidence in the military, because you can debate about how successful the military was. Uh, we didn't win the Afghanistan war, it was called a strategic defeat by, I think, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And the Iraq war certainly did not go as the backers of the war expected. That was a much more difficult war and the results much more ambiguous. So it's possible to say, uh, golly, we should be judging, we should be scoring the military lower on their performance and that should lead to lower confidence in the military. That's not what the, the polls uh, that we did show they show that the public still kind of thinks that the military performed well, uh, even if they don't think the war went well. And what's going on here um, is an interesting uh, partisan blame game. Uh, And that is to say the public uh, will say the leaders of my party and the military did well. The leaders of the other party screwed it up. Republicans will say, Republican leaders and the military managed the war in Afghanistan reasonably well, but the Democrats really screwed it up. Democrats will say, the Democratic leaders and the military managed the war pretty well, but the Republican leaders really screwed up. Notice what happens to the military there. They get to play this blame game where they stick, uh, unless they pop up and say, you know what, we should take blame for this outcome, which, of course, they're not doing. So they can hide behind the partisanship and avoid accountability. So one of the questions about performance is will negative assessments of the Afghan war, negative assessments of the Iraq war finally come to rest on the military themselves and therefore lower uh, public confidence in the military? That's that's possible. There's a ceiling effect here. The public thinks the military is highly competent, so it's pretty hard to move confidence up with uh, experiment, you know, survey experiments. But it is possible to move it down. So if you prime the public with negative information, you can there are negative information on performance you can move it down
0: so the surveys that you ran were done in waves in 2019 and 2020 yeah and uh i know that part of that survey experiment was a description that framed the afghanistan war either as victory Defeat. do you think oh there we go um do you think that in wake of the withdrawal from afghanistan and subsequent fall of kabul do you think that that maybe you would get different results today
2: uh, no, I, I I think we wouldn't get different results about the the, the drivers, but we would get different lo- lower numbers. Is what I would would say if that if that makes yeah. sense. And there's a for the scholars out there life lesson: when you do a survey, just publish the results as fast as possible. <laughs> uh, before life intervenes, world intervenes, and other pollsters intervene. So this is enormously uh, frustrating to have had fresh data that is now uh, dated. But you should still buy the book. The uh, I do the initial polls after the the withdrawal uh, seemed to back up this same dynamic that there was. Uh, A willingness to criticize civilian leaders, less willingness to criticize the military. But over time, as perceptions of performance, if they degrade, then I would expect public confidence to degrade.
0: So the next thing that you talk about is professional ethics. And we hear a lot about, um, well, the military is highly respected and people have a great deal of confidence because they see it as a highly ethical institution. Right. Um, Is that true? and uh, and how do how do you go about kind of thinking about the role of professional ethics
2: in in shaping public confidence? It is true that the public believes this about the military. We can have a de- debate about how profe- how high are the ethics in the, the military. There's certainly enough scandals to point to. And this is one of those cases where the uh, survey experiment did not function as expected. so the the standard survey experiment, you give them positive news, you expect positive results, you give them negative information, you expect negative results, uh, merely priming them to think about the ethics, produce negative results. And that m- made us think that, well, maybe the, maybe the public um, has this uh, residual, oh, I, the military must be ethical. But then if you just remind them about uh, ethical scandals, even if you're doing it in a way that's Meant to say a very small percentage, uh, you know, that this is a small problem. So one version said, you know, hundreds of GoFos have uh, been found, you know, to violate various ethical rules, and then the, the other—that was the negative frame. The positive frame was only a tiny percentage, uh, and well, and those are of course the same mathematical fact, but one is framed positively, one's framed negatively. Both of them had a, had a negative. Uh, impact And so uh, I do think that the, the, the military um, needs to be cognizant of the fact that baked into that confidence number is the expectation the military will behave ethically. And so when it's shown that the military is not behaving ethically, for instance, uh, as more attention is drawn to the scandal of a sexual assault and sexual harassment, in the uh, in the force that's going to have a negative impact on public confidence in the military you could argue it should right if the military is behaving poorly that should reflect uh, negatively on on people's views of the military.
0: So then if if any news about ethics, whether framed in a positive manner or a negative manner, results in a drop in public confidence, what's the solution to the military trying to raise public confidence and convincing the American public right. that it's an ethical institution?
2: Well, first thing is we need more research because the, the uh, <laughs> so someone needs to replicate that and probably do better survey experiments. So it could it's very possible that the that that the uh, framing that uh, we used f- was uh, flawed, and or not flawed, but is uh, tied to the wording in a way that uh, more tied to the wording than I uh, had anticipated. So I would hope that folks would replicate this, and this is actually a, a good point to mention. Whether or not you buy the book, although I hope you will. Um, <laughs> The data will be made available at uh, the same time on the Dataverse, and I'm hoping everyone downloads it and goes to town, uh, but also, uh, you know, tries to replicate this stuff uh, and maybe extend it. And, and I think the ethical argument is one ripe area for um, uh, extension. The, but in answer to your direct question, the military needs to be focused on deservedness. That is to say, they are right to worry about public confidence in the military. They should want that number to be high. But they should want it to be high for deserved reasons. Because they're competent. Because they're professionally ethical. Because they stay outside of politics. We'll maybe talk about that in a moment. Um, That's deservedness. That is worth earning. So earn the public respect. There was an old... Um, Smith Barney uh, TV ad when I was a kid that was, you know, Smith Barney makes money the old-fashioned way. They earn it. Uh, And that's what uh, my message would be to the the military. Uh, You need to earn it. Of course, then you have to get the story out so that people would know about it, but but earn it first.
0: So that's a nice segue into uh, some of the more I think interesting findings in the book, and perhaps maybe not counterintuitive, but um, certainly cause for alarm as we talk about, and we spoke yesterday a lot about polarization and kind of politicization of the force, you find that partisan identity is a big predictor of confidence in the military. Right. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Right. So the Republicans, much higher confidence in the military, almost to the point where of course, this was before surveying in 2020, before Donald Trump uh, and Tucker Carlson and others sort of took the turn to start criticizing the military. Uh, but there was, uh, for much of the uh, the last 20 years, uh, a sense of almost identity between the Republican uh, public and the military. They liked the military because they thought the military was theirs. Um, and... Uh, there was, uh, for decades, people like me and others had said to the military, you need to stay apart, aside from uh, partisan politics because if you get involved in partisan politics, it's going to uh, lower your standing with the public. The classic example being Congress, which is a very partisan institution, very public holds that in, high, in low esteem, I should say. Uh, and then the Supreme Court which uh, Heidi likes to say that Corey likes to say is uh, a good comparison as it became more partisan, uh, it, or perceived to be partisan, uh, it dropped. But the, the argument, I, I, still think that's true. I, it, first of all, the military should stay above partisan politics for many other reasons apart from mere keeping up public confidence in the military. But it turns out the public is not a good Umpire, when it comes to civil-military norms, uh, the public doesn't buy into the civil-military norms that uh, the folks here in the room uh, believe uh, and have, you know, spent their lives shaping and and writing about. Ron Krebs and a couple of co-authors have some interesting data on this, but it's also uh, replicated in multiple. Uh, surveys, beginning with the the TIS survey from the late nineties, and then um, the the survey that Jim Madison Corey Shockey uh, did in the mid two thousand and fifteen timeframe. The public just does not endorse the norms to include the norms of nonpartisanship that we think is important. But let me be precise here, the public wants the military to be nonpartisan, but appears to define nonpartisan as aligning with my party uh, and not aligning with the other party. So Democrats are not bothered by being told that the military is aligned with Democrats. They don't view that as a problem. Uh, It's Republicans who view that as a problem and vice versa. Uh, so rather than both parties punishing the military for any kind of partisan activity, partisan identity, the the partisan respondents are uh, almost not almost. They're actually willing to drag the military into their partisan food fight, and to pretend that the that when that's happening and they're doing it, the military. But it's bad when the other party doesn't. Another, this is a good time for another good uh, shout out for Mike Robinson's book, which is probably available for purchase right now, isn't it, <laughs> uh, which is dug into this uh, with some great data and, and great analysis as well. So this is a problem for us. Uh, it It means that politicization intersects with public confidence in a problematic way so it's the simple story i had been saying that just stay nonpartisan and the, and the public will reward you for that, it's not quite so uh, simple. The public will give you naughty rewards for naughty behavior as long as it's on their side, and the military should resist that naughtiness.
0: So this brings me to, um, you know, Heidi, you're getting a lot of shout outs today. Uh, Something that that Dr. Urban said uh, yesterday that, you know, culture, you may not be interested in culture wars, but the culture wars are interested in you, right? The military may not be interested in partisan politics, but partisan politics is now very interested in the military. Yes. And uh, and as the United States continues to polarize and we continue to see people drifting and sorting into parties and buying into um, kind of negative partisanship, these are these are disturbing trends. Do we see any implication for how the military might recruit and any kind of trouble or issues that that might present?
2: Yes, I, I do think that th- that's a, a problem that others have observed. That that there's a tribal accession policy where uh, social contact with the military is a heavy driver of whether you're likely to enlist or whether uh, or become an officer, uh, and that. It, is a a challenge uh, for um, keeping the military connected to the rest of civilian society if it's drawing from an ever more narrow base. One of the findings uh, in in the book is is just the extent to which social contact and knowledge, uh, uh, social connection or connection to the military, whether measured by social things or measured by knowledge or whether you're a veteran, those are all drivers of public confidence in in largely intuitive ways and the reason that all this matters is we know demographically one of the inexorable demographic uh facts is the passing of the draft generation that will happen Uh, and that means fewer and fewer uh, members of the american public will have a personal or family or direct uh, connection with the military and so the all-volunteer force in the future will have to recruit in a society that's very different from the one it was even in the early 70s the, when it was created. So it has to adjust. It has to adapt for that. Um, and it has to be wary about the culture war because, as one of the speakers reminded us yesterday, one of the ways that the military maintained high-quality uh, high quality, uh overall, was to bring in high-quality women into the force. Uh, So as it diversified from all-male to male and female, and as it opened up more and more of the uh, MOSs to to women, that brought in high-quality, high-caliber talent into the military. Uh, Similarly, as it was able to integrate uh, African Americans fully into the force and include them, Uh, And I give them a more positive experience. This also uh, helped the all volunteer force to thrive and replicates across every demographic group you can imagine. And of course, we're going to need more of that, right? We're going to need to recruit a more diverse, from a more diverse American society, a more diverse uh, military institution. And we want the best people that we can get for it. And this is where the culture war comes in. Some of the polling that's been done since uh, the polling that goes in this book shows that the culture war attack lines are penetrating. Not, they're not penetrating for the individuals who might join the military. Uh, we don't have much data of that, but they are showing up in the following way. When you ask people about talking points, whether they're talking points on the left or talking points on the right, and you, th- and you say, do you think these critiques uh, undermine confidence in the military? Uh, the public says, yeah, I think they do. And there's some evidence that the influencers, the people who otherwise might be recommending uh, service, are influenced by it. Now, sometimes it's respo- in response to real facts. So we know that uh, concerns about sexual assault, sexual harassment in the force is driving down propensity among women, but especially among uh, recommenders, you know, uh, influencers who are saying, mm, I'm not sure I want my daughter or my niece, whatever, to, to join. So that's, that's a, uh, not a culture war problem, that's a real uh, misbehavior problem. But the critiques, whether it's the anti-woke critique or others, they might also be affecting influencers. And this is beyond the research that I did in the book, but I think it's, it's worth flagging as a concern. When you talk down the military and you target the military in your culture war, you might be having a secondary effect on a propensity to uh, d- to join. And that's, you, one should take <laughs> that very seriously. So put another way, ironically, the notion that the military is woke may not be driving recruitment as much as the argument about whether the military is woke. That might be having a bigger effect uh than the um the fact alleged fact uh, itself. That's why I have a modest proposal and I'm trying to workshop out there And that is that we should declare the military as non-combatants in the culture war and give them non-combatant immunity. So uh, you can target civilians in the culture war. You can target the political party. You can argue. And there are genuine, legitimate policy disputes uh, that, that civilian political leaders should be arguing about and targeting each other about but they should not target the military. So uh, if you do not like DOD's policy on uh, abortion services, target the DOD civilians who are making that policy. Do not target the military who are implementing that policy. The corollary here though is the military has to remain non-combatants. So the military has to resist the temptation to join in the culture wars and to leap for the microphone or the twit, the tweet, uh, in order to score a point on, in the culture war. And then the third hand, they have to still speak up for their values. So I think it's a very narrow line that the military can walk and needs to walk uh, at, on, on this. But they, we need to get them to do that. For a variety of reasons, one of them might be its link to um, uh, encouraging others to join.
0: So this brings me to the the final kind of P here before we open it up for questions. So for those of you who have questions, start writing them down and get ready. Um, one of the most surprising, I, I think the, one of the most surprising findings in the book has to do with this public pressure argument. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, when you say that the support for the military is high but hollow, can you get into the hollow part and what kind of social desirability bias, um, you know, as the social scientists would say, what does that, uh, how is that affecting public confidence?
2: Well, I think the, the part of the book that I'm most pleased with is I figured out a way to quote Larry David. Uh, In the in the book, Curb Your Enthusiasm. There's this wonderful episode uh, of Curb Your Enthusiasm uh, where they're going to a dinner party and uh, The the woman has brought her date who's new to the group and he serves in the military and so they go around the room Thanks for your service. Thanks for your service. Thanks for your service and then Larry Davis says hi good to see you (laughs) and of course uh, that uh, wrong-foots the person who's waiting to be thanked for his service. <laughs> and it goes downhill from there, and uh, he leaves, the, the military officer leaves uh, because he feels unwelcome, uh, and then Larry David is kicked out by his friends. And as Larry <laughs> David's going, he g- goes around, thank you for your service of the coffee, thank you for your service. You know, it's, it's just a mwah, uh, moment in, uh, uh, in comedy. But it captures this idea that the social fact that the public knows that the public holds the military in high esteem may actually be creating a self-fulfilling prophecy. That is to say, the public feels like they have to give that answer, that that's the politically correct answer. Uh, And so the two survey waves, there's two uh, experiments designed to tap into the the latent attitude rather than this, what the social psychologists call the social desirability bias, politically correct answer. Uh, and the, the percentage, what, what we find, is that there is a fair bit, surprising bit of social desirability, somewhere between uh, 9% to 27%. And the I, I say it that way because the more uh, analytically, technically, a uh, precise version of the experiment gets the higher number, but that number, 27%, strikes me as pretty high. So I'm hoping people will replicate that, and we'll get a better, uh, we'll sort of home in on the answer. It's probably less than 27%, uh, but even if it's you know 10-15%, that's a fair bit of of uh, artificiality in public confidence in the military. Uh, that's that's the part of the hollowness that could quickly dissipate if the social pressure to give the correct answer uh, goes away. And so, uh, I think this is a reason for the military to focus on deservedness uh, and not just expect that they'll always enjoy uh, the the social desirability bias. One other point on on public pressure. Uh, This is the, the, the curse of having graduate students who are very smart. So, I had a grad student to read the book and you know identify critiques and and he said, "You know what? why why isn't there social desirability bias in every single thing you asked in every question? So if you think it's on the public uh, confidence measure, isn't it doesn't it show up across every single thing?" And I thought, uh, yeah, you that's possible." <laughs> but that's you know an ex- extremely expensive survey. Uh, but for the grad students out there looking for uh, ideas, just take some of the other questions and 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 dig into it, uh, because you might find similar uh, issues across uh, across the board. Great.
0: All right, I'm going to open it up to questions. Um, so line up at the at the microphones, please. And it's
2: uh... a very long walk. <laughs> Hi everybody, Dan. Thank you both so much. Curious, Peter. Did you explore perceptions of the Military as an agent or engine for social mobility because I think among the institutional collapse in Americans the confidence levels, at least anecdotally they still perceive the, the military as being one place where you can rise up and improve right Just curious about that no, not not directly at, like with, with that uh, question so that is a uh, that's a good follow-on study the the closest uh, that we came was looking at uh, the military uh, to address uh, racial concerns, uh, which is, of course, the, the one of the most famous uh, was this is Charlie D- uh, Moskos's argument that that the mil- the military ha- played a key role in advancing civil rights because it, of the way it was able to integrate African Americans. This is a great success uh, relative to even to civilian society. Uh, Charlie argued, um, and that this is. Something You know, it's epitomized, of course, in Colin Powell's uh, uh, rise to the chairmanship. That is an inspiring fact that, you know, could be uh, contribute to people having holding the public, sorry, holding the military in high esteem. I suspect there's something to that. We didn't probe it too much. But what we did see is that there's a huge partisan divide on the question of do you want the military to be used, con, you know, prospectively, not retrospectively. And so I think part of the um, culture war that we're seeing is, uh, is a part of, reflects a partisan divide about this. I think uh, most Republicans are proud retrospectively of the integration of African Americans in the military. And so they would look, you know, to so the 75th anniversary of Truman's decision, they would look to that as you know, progress in, the, in America, and Republicans would, would agree. But then if you, say, if you look at prospecting and say, okay, should we do, be doing more? Should, then that starts to evoke for them uh, things like critical race theory, other kinds of auxiliary arguments around DEI. And this, uh, the, now we get a big uh, partisan divide. And so that the, they don't want the military to be involved in that future thing, even though they're proud of the military having been involved in the past thing. And so that, that's an interesting problem. I, I meant to say this earlier on the culture war point. Thank you for that question. Meant to say this in the culture war. I believe the terms have lost meaning. So if I had five minutes with the chairman, on, you know, piggybacking on what um, uh, Dr. Urban said yesterday. I would say, yes, but beware that all of these terms, even DEI, is is now a loaded term uh, in the partisan environment. So un, don't use that term, DEI. Instead, use the underlying fact. I think your research that you revealed showed that if you talk about it one way, you get Opposition, But if you describe it in more neutral terms that have not yet been, you know, uh, uh, coded in the in the, the troll wars, you get support for it. And so I, I think there's uh, that would be part of my advice to military leaders is you've got to speak about the values of your organization. Yes. But talk about them without using any of the terms that have now no longer mean what. Uh, they might have once meant and just accept that that word no longer means what it once might have meant. All right. Colonel Prakowski.
1: Colonel Prakowski, assistant professor in the Army War College. Um, If the public is not going to give the military credit for being nonpartisan in implementing the policies of the party in power, um, what are the policy implications for our civilian masters who might care about the stature of the military as they uh, give us policy to implement
2: yeah well i'm in the county in the school says we need to do better education of the public, so yes let, let's not give up on civics education, but let's also not wait for good civics education to catch up and re- restore so this is one place where the military as a profession has to police its own, has to enforce its norms. Even without uh, help from the public and even without help from civilian leaders. Um, if you saw the, there was an open letter signed by all but one of the retired chairman and all but one of the retired SecDefs last September that was directly responsive to this. It was trying to lay out, it was published in War in the Rocks, it was trying to lay out. This is what best practice in civilian control means to include this question of how we obey legal orders and how we uh, and and what that does and does not mean. And this is the, the you know sort of the right and left uh, chalk marks on what the professional leaders should be doing. Grade us on this if we are not doing this, if we're not doing the principles outlined in the open letter, ding us. But if we are um, uh, doing this and you don't like the policy, that's uh, you should not ding us. That's how our constitutional order works. And so that was sent uh, to multiple audiences, to the military, but also hopefully uh, to reach the civilian leaders who would read that. And and say, aha, I've got to, you know, adjust the way I'm scoring uh, the military. And this is one of the, uh, an argument I think that will resonate with re- Republicans. Republicans are are quite confident that they will have the executive branch again, uh, maybe as soon as 2024. Uh, but, but they would be very confident by 2028, given just trend lines, et cetera. And so, they're going to be the civilian, executive civilians, and they will want the military to be as um, uh, efficient in executing legal orders they give as the military is, is trying to do for Biden. And they, they sh- that's an argument that they, they should, and I think could, uh, uh, resonate with. I hope that answered your question.
0: Right. Dr. Vuick, who uh, was our, our panelist yesterday who does the fantastic work on women in the military. Well, thank you. Um, you've actually started to answer the question I was going to ask, so I, I might just give you a, a, a bit more opportunity to expand on this um, with regard to the military being non combatants in the Culture War. And I'm curious how that, um, if the very values of your institution and members of your institution are being attacked, is there a way to essentially defend those people and those values without engaging in? The culture wars can you play does playing defense essentially make you a participant
2: it's a good question and uh my uh, my answer would be the following first the civilian leaders need to be the front lines so it should be the service secretaries who are the the loudest and most prominent uh, voices defending this or that uh policy uh as long along with the Secretary of Defense, the Civilian Secretary of Defense, and all the political appointees under them, they are the front line. They should be speaking louder, more persuasively uh, and should not hide behind the military's you know um, uniform basically in carrying the water for the policy that's the first thing. The second thing is it's possible to talk about your values uh, without engaging in a Twitter troll war with a troll on Twitter. So not every uh, attack needs to be responded to, uh, and certainly not every attack needs to be responded to by name. So if you think about the prominent cases where a military officer may have gotten, you know, sucked down into a, a less helpful engagement with the, the um, Twitter war, there was a, uh, a calling out, a calling out of the, the individual on the, in the Twitter back and forth and a calling out of the named uh, uh, media personality who was making the argument. And I think it's possible, there, there were other options. So if if I had been the PAO, I might have said, "Okay, that's one option, sir, but here's another one that might not feel as good, uh, but might nevertheless enforce the the values." So, you know, we're probably thinking about the Donahue case, where uh, what he said did encourage women in the force. They wanted women, uh, so the women in the force wanted to have their. membership uh, validated and defended against attack but there I think there probably was ways to do that without getting uh, without crossing the line it's a it's a very difficult line uh, to cross and th- um, the they're gonna make mistakes you know general and flag officers are going to make mistakes but if they are uh, if, if they have this in mind as I, this, these, I'm tiptoeing through a minefield here r- rather than I'm chasing likes on social media here, then I think you'll, they're less likely to overreach. The, you know, the first rule of ledge affairs is if it feels good, don't say it, right? <laughs> so that, I think, has to be part of uh, this story as well or part of the guidance as well.
0: All right, we'll take this one over here. Our last question.
2: Thank you, Pete White, Auburn University. Um, I was wondering if you gave the American public the opportunity to differentiate their support for the troops versus their support. We did. Oh, you did? Yeah. I'd just be curious to hear about and that. And military leaders, the military, and troops. And, and also, we asked them uh, now reflect on military you actually know. Uh, does that change your answer? And so uh, you do get some differences. It's still high. You can't make the confidence of the military disappear by these things. It's not as if it's all about the troops. And once you put a, you know, a, a pompous general's eye name out there that it, it collapses, no. They have high respect for the generals and admirals. They have high respect for the rank and file. They have high respect for military they know, et cetera. But you can move it up and down a little bit by uh, referencing this. And I think uh, President um, Trump intuited this uh, when he tried to align himself with the rank and file against uh, the military, um, against the military leaders, that he was intuiting that the public probably had greater af- uh, affection for the rank and file uh, or the military in the abstract than they did for specific uh, general and flag officers, and I think that that is the case
0: So I'm gonna end with uh, one final question the um, To, to kind of sum up we've done a lot of discussion about Why public confidence in the military is a good thing mm-hmm. and why we should be uh, seeking to improve public confidence in in the military are there downsides to really high levels of public confidence in the military? What are, what are some of the, the cautionary tales when you have a public that
2: holds the military in such high esteem? Well, there, so that's a good question and it's a good one to end, uh, end on. The, I don't want public confidence to go down. Uh, <laughs> in, in the, uh, I want public confidence to remain high. I want the military to earn it to remain high. But that doesn't mean that public confidence is an unalloyed good. The military enjoys some intangible benefits that come along with public confidence. And not all of those intangible benefits are good for the military uh, or, um, you know, uh, even though they may uh, feel good in the moment, like the uh, French fries I ate last night, which felt great in the moment. uh, (laughs) And I think, well, I probably had more than I, I should have had. I think the public, the military may get a little bit more of this than they should have in the following respect, uh, what, what I call pedestalization. This is where you put the military on a pedestal where they're literally looking down, you know, or figuratively, I should say, looking down on the rest of society where you hold the military in such high esteem and it's the only thing in society that can be held in this high esteem. Uh, And then they're standing on the pedestal looking down. Uh, And, of course, that's a dangerous place to be. Uh, If you've uh, watched uh, White Christmas, you know that that's a dangerous place to be (laughs) up there on the charger looking down. But it also uh, encourages the military to have a self-attitude that may not lend itself to full internal accountability. So a profession is not professional unless it is evaluating its own performance on a continuous basis, enforcing its norms, uh, policing its behavior, improving, et cetera. That's, as Don Snyder reminds us, that's essential to being a profession. But if you're on the pedestal, well, you don't need to, maybe don't need to do so much. If you can avoid accountability by playing this blame game, et cetera, you can um, you can uh, be lazy in your professionalism, and so I do worry about pedestalization. Uh, one idea that I uh, is in the book that n- no one yet really likes, but I'm sticking with it uh, <laughs> is this idea of um, "thanks for your service" spread out more widely. So the that's in the title of the book, and that you know captures part of this idea: public wants to thank you. Uh, for doing something that they were unwilling to do—that's at the heart of this. But the military can receive that thanks and then give it back to society by saying, "Okay, what do you do?" And she says, "Well, I teach, you know, eighth grade civics." Oh, ho, ho, thanks for your service. That is a tough assignment. You know, I remove asbestos. Thanks for your service, et cetera. There's a way of passing it back that I think would recognize. There's lots of ways to serve. Military is one good one; it's a noble one. We are grateful for it, but it's not the only one.
0: Terrific. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Fever, for uh, sitting with us this morning. A reminder: the book is "Thanks for Your Service." It comes out June twenty-first. Uh, lots of great data. Even if you don't buy it, go dig into the publicly released data and uh, go replicate all of the all of the results and develop new research questions uh, so we can we can do more research in this. But joy, please join me in thanking Dr. Fever. Thank you.